Chapter 14b of Bible Defense of Slavery by Josiah Priest. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. It is not very likely that Ham and his family were very well pleased with the curse and denunciation of Noah, which put them, with all who should proceed from their house, under the ban of everlasting servitude to the races of their brethren. This circumstance, beyond all doubt, raised up in the minds of that people an unconquerable hatred, not only toward Noah, but also toward Shem and Japheth, with their entire posterities in those ages. On this account it was that Ham left the paternal tents and altar of sacrifice near Ararat much sooner than did the other sons, wandering still further down the Euphrates toward the sea, till they came to the great flats of Shinar, where Nimrod, the grandson of Ham, commenced the foundation of his empire, and where he, with Ham and all the race, set about building the tower, as a defense against another flood, and as a temple of idolatry, and a rallying point for their tribes in coming ages. It was, no doubt, on the account of Noah's curse that Nimrod, the great leading spirit, like Satan among the falling angels, opposed himself so cruelly with all his power to the religion of Noah, as propagated by Shem, who was Melchizedek. His grand object was to produce and consolidate a power by which to protect his race against the threatened servitude of Noah, his grandsire, announced in the curse, as well as to establish a contrary system of religion, which would subserve the same end. At the time of the confusion of the language, there was none of the races of Shem and Japheth there. That operation, the building of the tower, was wholly a negro invention, who had the requisite geometrical knowledge at the time, derived from the house of Noah, who brought this knowledge, with all other, from beyond the flood. On this account, for some hundred years, the first people of those countries had more scientific knowledge than the nations, many of them had a thousand years afterwards. But how is it known that the races of Shem and Japheth did not participate in the wicked project of the tower? It is shown from the natural antipathy of the children of Shem toward the blacks and also from its being an idolatrous temple, or tower, from which the descendants of Shem and Japheth would turn with horror, especially while Noah, Shem, Arphaxad, and others of the patriarchs of the Holy Line were yet alive, and the dictators of the religion and morals of the people. Josephus says, in his Jewish Antiquities, page 19, that Nimrod was a bold man, and of great muscular strength. The Jewish rabbi say also, in their tradition, that he was a mighty giant, and of a morose, cruel, and savage temper, a tyrant among his people, 
who forced men from the fear of God, threatening to be revenged on God for destroying the world by water. Moses says he was a mighty hunter before the Lord, to which the rabbi add that he not only hunted and destroyed the wild animals which abounded beyond measure in that early age, but that he also killed men, unless they would unite with him against God and the religion of Noah. That the blacks of that age and of the house of Nimrod were violent persecutors of the race and religion of Shem and Noah, as related by Josephus, is supported by a Persian tradition, which says that they, having, at a certain time, got into their hands a child of the family of Terah, which was Abraham, they cast it into a strong fire. But when they looked to see it writhe and agonize in the flames, behold, the place of the fire had become a hedge of roses, in full bloom, where the infant lay embedded, as on a couch of down formed of those flowers. Nimrod, Ham, and coadjutors, therefore, were the great fathers of idolatry in the world after the flood, who inducted the people into their system of religion by combining the indulgence of one of the strongest passions of human nature with the worship of the gods, making such indulgence one of the chief virtues, because from this indulgence proceeded the human race, as they believed, by which means the world was peopled, a religion in exact agreement with the naturally obscene propensities of the Negro race. In the bosom of a Negro man, the idea of liberty, freedom, and independence does not give rise to the same sensations, hopes, and expectations that it does in the bosom of the whites. To the mind of a slave, or even of a free black man, with but small exception, the idea of liberty is but the idea of a holy day, in which they are to be let loose from all restraint or control. They are to play, work, or sleep, as may suit their inclination. Following out, to the utmost, the perfect indulgence of indolence, stupidity, and the animal passions. But to the mind of the white man, liberty is the means of the moral and physical improvement of himself and race. It is the field of labor out of which will arise, as wheat from the seed, a harvest of knowledge, intellectual refinement, well-ordered society, the advancement of the arts and sciences, government of the passions, with every good thing that can charm the elevated mind and conduce to the bliss of human existence. The races set out with equal opportunities at the subsiding of the flood, but who has won and taken the prize of power, of social and mental improvement? It cannot be denied that, to the perceptions of a white man, the Negro's case is a hard one, and was fully foreknown to the Creator, who is merciful and kind. Yet he did not see fit not to create them, 
and to create them in the loins of Ham, a degraded race, as well as to appoint them to servitude, while the father of the race was yet alive. If the hard lot of this people affords at present a reason why they should be set free, such as are in slavery, it can be said in reply that the same reason existed at first in the eye of the divine foresight, with all the force that it does now. With such a course, however, namely, not to create them, did not please the Maker, as it was agreeable to him that they should exist, and exist as we find them, a race totally different from the whites, in every respect that can be thought of, except that they are human, but of the lowest order, and eminently adapted to a state of servitude. But, says an abolitionist, we do not disagree to the African race being servants, if they desire it, that is, hired servants, as in this way the scriptures, or word of prophecy by Noah, can as well be fulfilled as that the race should be slaves. To this position we reply that it is extremely short-sighted, as he who hires himself out to labor is not a slave-servant in any sense of the word, but is a free man, having, at his own will, disposed of his labor, not of his body, as he saw fit. The scriptures, in the law of Moses, made a great distinction between a slave and a hired man. See Leviticus chapter 25, verses 39 and 40, where it is written as follows. Thou shalt not compel them, a Hebrew, to serve as a bond-servant, but as a hired servant. But notwithstanding the discriminating remark of Moses, abolitionists can discover no difference in the two cases, confounding them together, because they will, and not because they do not know better. Were this the way in which the Spirit of God directed Noah to curse the race of Ham with servitude, and the way in which he intended its fulfillment, namely, that they were generally to hire themselves out to work for other people, then it would follow that this curse applied as much to both the other races as it did to Ham's race. For there are found as many laborers among the other races, and especially the whites, who work on hire, as among the blacks, and a thousand times as many, as they are a more industrious people. Surely the Supreme Being could never have intended to call a man cursed, because he should hire himself out to labor. There must be, therefore, some worse meaning attached to the idea of a bond-servant than the hiring of one's self out. On this view of the subject, bond-service cannot be made out, as personal bondage supposes the holding of our bodies as property. Consequently, when Moses said to the Hebrews that if they wanted bondmen and bondmaids who were to serve them forever, they were to buy them, not hire them, of the heathen, and to hold them by compulsion, as a possession 
for themselves and their children after them, which they could not do with a hired man. From this view of the subject, it is easy to perceive that the arguments of abolitionists entirely neutralize the force of the denunciation of Noah respecting Ham's race, causing it to refer as much to one people as to another, who may chance to hire themselves out to labor, making it a curse to do so, and they who do it a cursed race. Is not this a fair result of their position? But, says an abolitionist, we do not believe that the curse of Noah signified or related in any sense to such a thing as the personal bondage of any of the race of Ham, with a view to their bodily enslavement. That curse, we hold, was wholly of a national character, and was fulfilled, as it related to Shem's rule, when the Jews subdued old Canaan, and as to Japheth's rule, when the white nations, under Alexander, destroyed old Tyre and Zidon with other negro countries, putting them under tribute and national servitude. To this, as to the other problem, we must reply that it will not do, as by this mode of interpretation all the other nations of the earth who have alternately subdued each other by war, policy, or stratagem, and laid one another under vassalage and tribute, are, therefore, equally cursed with the race of Ham. As to the quintessence of the thing, as it was no worse for the negro Canaanites to be put under vassalage and tribute than any other people, so that they were no more under a divine curse than any of the rest of mankind when conquered. Wherefore, in this way of explaining the text, abolitionists make it void and indefinite as to its particular application, which the whole history, as written by Moses in the ninth chapter of Genesis, disallows. There is but one way remaining to give that scripture, Genesis chapter 9, as well as the clause in the law, Leviticus chapter 25, a consistent meaning, and that is to allow that both recognized the individual and bodily slavery of the race of Ham by the two other races, the circumstance of their paying tribute, at any time, as a people, to other nations who might conquer them, having nothing to do toward the fulfillment of that denunciation of Noah, as that decree related not to national, but to individual slavery. If this is not the true sense of those passages, and especially that of Genesis chapter 9, verses 25 through 27, it would remain, as yet, uncertain whether that curse or decree has been in any degree fulfilled. The fond idea, or we may say, the fanaticism and foolish notion of abolitionists, which supposes the hiring out of the race of Ham at their own discretion to the other races, falls, therefore, to the ground, so far as it relates to the fulfilling of the curse of Noah upon the posterity of Ham, 
his youngest but wretchedly profligate son. Thus, having disposed of the foregoing objections and positions of abolitionists, we now address ourselves to combat another error of their creating. This is the circumstance of the slaves laboring, as they say, for no reward or wages, and therefore slavery is not according to the principle of eternal rectitude, but is a sin of the blackest dye. Now, do not frown, dear reader, when we tell you that this is not true of slavery, as slaves do not labor without a hope of reward, and that reward they generally receive. It is true, however, that their wages is not as much as many other laborers obtain, and then again it is much more than many receive who are not slaves. The laboring classes of men over the whole earth and among all people operate under very different circumstances, which has been the case in all ages, and will continue to be thus to the end of time. In all countries, miners, apprentices, and children labor till of age, for no other reward than their food, shelter, and clothing. In millions of cases, men labor all their lives, and never receive anything more than their food and raiment, and yet they were not bondmen, but free. Do not black slaves receive as much as this? And is not this a reward to which they look with all the eagerness of any other kind of laborers? Do they not hail the hours of meal-times as the bright spot of their destiny, with as much joy as do other laborers? The clothes they receive, are they not far better than their original nakedness in the wilds of Africa? Who rewarded them then? Millions of free men over the whole earth do not receive as much wages as do the Negroes of the slave states in America, but, with their freedom, actually starve to death, even in England and her dependencies, not from idleness, but from oppression. Among free men, how many beggars do we meet with who receive no wages? But among Negro slaves, there are no beggars. Food and raiment is all that a man can receive on the earth, which is as sure to a negro slave as to the rest, and is the whole reward of animal labor and of animal existence. The rich, though they control more than they can individually consume, have, in reality, nothing, after all, more than a slave except injurious and ruinous luxuries. Wherefore, as it respects mere physical existence, slaves are on a perfect level with the rest of mankind, which is not only philosophically, but scripturally true. For Solomon says, Ecclesiastes chapter 6 verse 7, that all the labor of man is for his mouth, which is his portion and reward under the sun. Negro slavery, therefore, on that account, is not contrary to the principle of eternal rectitude. 
It is true, however, that their hope of speculation is not as great as it is among the whites. Yet the amount, upon the whole, which they receive, is just the same, as their food, raiment, and shelter are made much surer to them, especially in Christian countries, than among the free blacks. The servitude of the race of Ham to the latest era of mankind is necessary to the veracity of God himself, as by it is fulfilled one of the eldest of the decrees of the scripture, namely, that of Noah, which placed the race as servants under the other races. This is noticed by Newton in the same light, which has been, and now is, being everywhere fulfilled, with all the punctuality that all the other decrees are and have been fulfilled, and should convince all abolitionists of their unavailing error in opposing this great and nearly most ancient decree of the divine oracles. God is just and good in the adaptation of circumstances to the well-being of every creature of the earth, which is as manifest in the negro's case as in the case of every other grade of animal being. If the white man is more intellectual than a negro, so much the more are his cares and responsibilities. On this principle we notice that in the negro character is fixed as a kind of antidote or recompense for slavery a certain disposition to levity, peculiar to themselves, which takes off much of the weight of their seeming sorrows. This enables them more cheerfully to endure, without thought, their condition of servitude. One trait of this peculiar character of the negroes is their fondness of singing and whistling, in which they universally indulge, even under circumstances which would make a white man weep. They generally have voices of the most melodious character, and can whistle with their thick lips better than all mankind beside, in the sounds of which they forget all things else, rejoicing in the lightness and levity of their peculiar natures. Who has not witnessed this? that has seen and noticed this people at all. Thus, mercifully is thrown into the negro's being, circumstances which go to make his condition tolerable, though created black and doomed to servitude, rendering him upon the whole not less happy than are the other races of men. Thus, with balanced eye, the great all-seeing has made each race with an equal being, has with the ills of life some blessing mixed, though in our grades a general state is fixed. The white man soars as with an eagle's flight, while the black man dips in the wave of night. And both, rejoicing in their several spheres, should offer thanks in the Eternal's ears. End of chapter 14